Chapter 15 of Campfire Girls in the Allegheny Mountains. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Campfire Girls in the Allegheny Mountains by Stella M. Francis. Chapter 15 A Pile of Scrap Lumber. Conditions and developments seemed to work favorably for the mysterious trappers of the Campfire Girls. In the first place, when Mrs. Stanlock returned home and found the house without an occupant, except Kitty Copy, who was working away very quietly in the kitchen, it was difficult for her to suspect anything wrong. "'Where are the girls, Kitty?' she inquired, and the other replied, with a suggestion of foreign accent. "'Oh, they've just gone out for a walk. they be back soon, I guess.' "'I hope they didn't go far,' Mrs. Stanlock said concernedly. "'They ought to be very careful. "'It will be getting dark before very long. "'It's cloudy and looks like more snow. "'How long have they been gone?' "'About half an hour,' Kitty answered. "'I went out to the drug store to get something for my toothache, "'and when I came back, they was gone.' This was the first reference that Mrs. Stanlock heard regarding Kitty's toothache, but she accepted the statement for its face value and waited hopefully for an early return of her daughter and her daughter's guests. Half an hour went by, and the girls did not appear. Darkness was now visibly gathering. Mrs. Stanlock was becoming uneasy and called up her husband's office but Mr. Stanlock had already started for home. By the time he arrived, the good woman was almost prostrated, so rapidly were fear and apprehension taking possession of her. The big coal operator scented danger at once. Immediately after gathering the principal details of the day's occurrences, he got the police station on the wire, and communicated them to the officer in charge. Drastic measures were resorted to at once. The day shift of uniformed and ununiformed guardians of the law was summoned back to duty, and a posse of available citizens were sworn in. About seven o'clock a posse of citizen policemen, led by three or four uniformed members of the regular force, begun a canvas of the neighbourhood to discover information that might suggest a clue as to the whereabouts of the missing girls. Half an hour later a woman informed one of the canvases that she had seen eight or ten girls enter the yard of the old Buckholtz place between three and four o'clock, but had not noticed whether they went into the house or not. The man to whom this statement was made blew a whistle as an agreed signal to the other searchers that he had important information, and soon a score of them were running toward him from all directions. A comparison of notes disclosed the fact that another member of the party of canvassers had received a similar statement from another resident in the neighbourhood. It was decided, therefore, to delay no further but to proceed at once to the house in question, while one of the men hastened to Mr. Stanlock with news of developments in order that he might be present and direct the next move. 
The latter was waiting at home, ready to answer a telephone or personal call from any of the central points of investigation. The nervous strain of the apparent certainty by this time that the disappearance of Marion and her guests pretended serious developments and compelled Mrs. Stanlock to take to her bed and summon physician and a nurse. The call from the searchers in the neighborhood took Mr. Stanlock from her bedside, and so speedily did he respond to it that he was at the entrance of the Backholtz house almost as soon as the party of citizens and uniformed policemen. Don't hesitate, men, he urged. I know the owner of this house very well, and I will take all responsibility for damages on my own shoulders. If the door won't give, break it down. Maybe there is somebody at home, Lieutenant Larkin suggested. Let's ring the bell first. Well, come on, said Mr. Stanlock. We'll soon find out if there's anyone in the house. He led the way up the weather-beaten but fairly well-preserved steps and pulled the knob of the old-fashioned doorbell. Then they waited expectantly, straining their ears to catch the sound of the approach of someone within. But no such sound reached them. It appearing evident now that the house was temporarily without an inmate, the searches for the thirteen mysteriously vanished girls decided to force their way in. Under ordinary conditions, this act would have been recognized as burglary, but the present circumstances were so extraordinary that legal consequences had no terrors for any of those present. Accordingly, an examination was made of the two first-story windows, two of which were found unlocked. With the aid of a box, discovered under the rear porch, several of the men climbed in one by one and found themselves in a large unfurnished room, architecturally intended, perhaps, as a dining room. Each of the three uniformed policemen carried an electric flashlight, and with the aid of these an examination of the house was begun. But not a trace of the missing girls could be found. What next? one of the men asked. The basement, suggested Lieutenant Larkin. Mr. Stanlock opened the door at the head of the stairway and flashed his light down the steps. Wait a minute, he said, barring the entrance. Let's examine the ground as we go. These steps have dust on them, and there are shoe prints in the dust. And yes, sir, as sure as you are alive, they are the prints of women's shoes, and there are a lot of them, unless I'm mistaken. Be careful now, men. Follow me single file and come down along the left side of the stairway, as close to the wall as possible so as not to spoil those footprints in the dust. Look out, said Mr. Stanlock. There may be some desperate characters down there with guns. Better let me go first. I have most at stake. Not much, replied the lieutenant. We'll never win the European war without charging the trenches. All I ask is that you get the fellow that gets me, so here goes. Cautiously he descended the stairs, 
followed by the five men who had entered the house with him. But their anticipations were groundless. Not a sign of human life did they find in the large, square, deep basement or cellar more properly. Some of the men looked puzzled. Mr. Stanlock was evidently laboring under increasing stress, but Lieutenant Larkin's curiosity seemed to grow. Some queer stories have been told about this place, he said, and I'm wondering if now it's not the time to put them to a test. They are pretty wild stories, almost as wild as haunted house yarns, but there may be a thing to them. I've heard something about them myself, said Mr. Stanlock. You refer to the stories about the building of this house over an old mine, I suppose? This cellar was said to have been the mouth of the shaft of the mine enlarged. That's it, the lieutenant replied. Now let's look about and see if there is anything to it. He began to flash his light over the floor, walls, and contents of the cellar. The latter consisted principally of barrels, boxes, and a nondescript pile of scrap lumber. Most of this was heaped against the south wall. Presently something in the pile of lumber held the attention of the lieutenant, who began to examine it more closely. "'Look here,' he said, addressing Mr. Stanlock. "'Do you see any difference between this pile of lumber?' and that dry goods box over there. I was just noticing that there was a heavy covering of dust on the box, and little or none on the top pieces of lumber. The mine owner answered. That's just it, continued Lieutenant Larkin, and it can mean only one thing, that this pile of lumber has been moved recently. Now, the question, in view of the fact that the missing girls were seen entering this place today, and in view of the shoe prints on the cellar stairway, and the fact that they are not in the basement now is, why? The best way to find out is to move it again, suggested Sergeant Higgins. Exactly, agreed his superior officer. Now, Johnson, you go upstairs and inform the other men what we are doing. We don't want them down here, for there's nothing they can do. Moreover, we don't want any more travelling up and down those steps than is absolutely necessary. Be careful, Johnson, on your way up. Excuse me, Lieutenant, interposed Mr. Stanlock in a weak voice that bespoke the distress under which he was labouring. I think I won't remain down here just now. I'll go up and carry that message to the men, if you wish. Let me know as soon as you can what you find. End of chapter 15